You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about occupational therapy. Joining me is an occupational therapist from CHOP named Ashley Binkowski, so thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to kind of tell you all about OT. So let's just start right with that. Describe to me what an occupational therapist does. Yeah, so occupational therapy is really unique in the fact that we help people across the lifespan um, to do things that they want to do or that they need to do through the use of therapeutic activity um, in order to complete occupations, hence occupational therapy. So For the purpose of this, it's really important to know that children have three main occupations, um, activities of daily living. So Mm -hmm. that's your ability to take care of yourself, get up, get dressed, shower, do those daily things, be able to participate in school, and then most importantly, be able to play um, and engage with their environment. That's a really good point because we don't think about occupations and children as going together. So it's nice that you're pointing out that there's there are actually occupations that children do. And I think they range too, to think about that, because we have different expectations for kids at different ages. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't expect our two-year-old to be able to independently clean up their own things. We'd have to kind of coach them through that where we would expect our nine-year-old to do that. Right, right. So... In the outpatient setting, what are some of the most common diagnoses for which children are referred to you? So that's a really good question because I think that there's a really large kind of variation of diagnoses or wide range that we do see. So they can range anything from a general developmental delay, so not meeting age-appropriate developmental milestones, and that could be just a general delay or it could be medically related. Mm-hmm. And then we also see kids with brachial plexus injury, any kids with type of just global weakness or kind of your lower tone kids. Mm -hmm. And then um, anything that happens from a traumatic event or a non-traumatic event. So if any child's in a motor vehicle accident um, or has a a stroke, for example, is another thing. We also see a lot of neuromotor impairments. So kids that have just general coordination delays or fine motor delays as well. And I think um, just to note too that CHOP is really unique because we do see a lot of complex hand trauma. So any kids that have any um, injury to their hands or upper extremities. Mm -hmm. Those are, like you said, a wide range of things that you see. So what's the earliest age? You mentioned that you're across the lifespan. So what's the earliest age where we might note developmental delays that an OT in particular can help with? And what would that look like clinically? Yeah. So I think um, it's important to think we can see babies as little as they were just born to kind of all the way up to about 12 months in terms of that developmental delay area. Um, I think it's really important to note some like kind of like red flags to kind of look for. So in our really younger babies, Um, A big indicator is typically vision, Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that we specialize in. So if uh, a parent or a caregiver reports to a primary care physician that their child's not fixating on their face by six weeks of age Mm -hmm. or that they're not tracking or they have some abnormal eye movements, 
that's definitely a reason to kind of get a further evaluation. Mm-hmm. That being said, another really big red flag, especially for our little tiny babies, is uh, unilateral preference. Mm-hmm. So we never want to see a child um, have a preference at that early of age. We want to make sure that they're using both sides of their body symmetrically, that they're using both hands, bringing hands to the middle of their body. So that would be another kind of really big um, red flag. And then I think just like overall developmental milestones. So if you, you know, see a child who's behind with some of those things, such as rolling or sitting up, you know, not, not reaching for toys uh, above shoulder level, not bringing hands to bottle, not participating in feeding at all, mm-hmm. then they would be reasons to kind of want to have an occupational therapist look at your child. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily need to be um, right away in the outpatient setting. I think early intervention is definitely a good avenue to go down. Um, but sometimes there is a lag between early intervention services and actually getting the services and getting the evaluation. Right. So um, outpatient OT can sometimes bridge that gap. Um, so if we if we see that a little baby is on the wait list or something, they'll typically try and get them in to kind of bridge that gap. That's great. That's a good tip. You mentioned feeding. So we often think about speech and feeding. So what specifically could an OT do to help a child with feeding concerns? Um, so I think that's another really good question. So I think it depends on the type of feeding concerns that a parent has. So if a parent has a concerns about postural control during meals, kind of being laying, like laying over the table and not being able to sit upright, that would be a good use for OT and and also the ability to actually self-feed. Mm-hmm. Um, like bringing spoon to the mouth. Correct. Or even just finger utensil. feeding. Okay. So even just finger feeding, being able to pick up little things, pick up their sippy cup themselves. So that would, that would be a good use of OT in outpatient setting. CHAP also does have a feeding clinic here, um, which is usually the best route to go down if a child has not already been evaluated by GI or a nutritionist. Right. It's just to rule out any medical reason that they're having difficulties with feeding, especially if they're not accepting textures or different tastes. That, that should be the first line of defense. But if the child already has um, a GI doctor or a nutritionist, then an outpatient occupational therapy evaluation would be a really good um, route to kind of go down. And we also kind of help the with the sensory processing part of it as well. So sometimes if kids are accepting different textures or they have a very limited diet, um, occupational therapy can use specific interventions to help the child um, explore different tastes and textures. Those are um, great ways to kind of augment what you said the gastroenterologist or the speech therapist and other parties might be doing. Because that's an occupation, right? <laughs> Being able to self-feed is an occupation that a child should be engaging in as early as, you know, five to six months of age. Right. So we've talked a lot about babies and, and a younger age. So what about toddlers? What are some common things that you see toddlers for? When we end up seeing toddlers, it typically is because their parents have a concern because they're comparing their child to other peers. Mm-hmm. So a parent may notice that their toddler isn't playing like other kids. They're not using their hands the same way other kids are using them. They're not having that social interaction with other kids so they typically ask us then to assess like any fine motor or coordination or social um, delays. Mm-hmm. 
And then um, I think also we see toddlers a lot because parents, if it's their second child, do a lot of comparing to their first child. Mm -hmm. And they may notice that their second child isn't engaging in daily routines like their first child was. They're not, you know, interested in helping getting dressed or they're not playing and they're not going through the stages of play like their first child did. So it kind of puts up a little red flag. Um, So we'll typically see kids... Uh, for that concern as well. And I think the the biggest thing with toddlers is that they're just not playing the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a toddler's main job mm-hmm. during the day right. is to play. Right. And when they're not able to engage in those skills, um, we'll typically see them for that. Mm-hmm. Great. So when you're seeing a toddler for things like play, are they doing therapy together? Are they doing like a play-based therapy? Or are they working and playing with the therapist? Typically working and playing with a therapist. So giving them those essential skills um, to be able to, I think something as simple as, you know, we take for granted building a block tower, Mm -hmm. but a lot goes into that. There's the physical part of it, the fine motor part of it, the cognitive part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and then the visual piece of it. So making sure that all of those foundational skills are there so that they continue to grow Mm -hmm. um, and play. So what about the school age child now? So for school-age kids, it's a little different because parents' concerns typically arrive from a concern from a teacher or a gym teacher that they notice something's different or that they're having a hard time keeping up with their peers in the classroom setting or their coordination just isn't the same as other kids in gym class. And so we typically for the school-age kid, get a lot more referrals for those coordination, fine motor kind of delays. And we see that happen because there's this huge expectation shift. So they they may not have had to engage in these specific structured structured activities before right. and now and now that they now they do. So with coordination, again we talked before about the overlap in feeding concerns with speech therapy. I would think of some coordination as physical therapy. So where's the difference? Is it all fine motor coordination versus gross motor coordination where you draw the line between PT and OT? Um, No. So a a lot of occupational therapists work on um, coordination in the sense of being able to use two sides of their body simultaneously or separate. Mm -hmm. So being able to do activities two-handed. So something, for an example, would being coordinated enough to untwist a cap from a toothpaste Mm -hmm. and then hold the toothbrush with the other hand and square and squeeze it onto the toothbrush is coordination. That's bilateral coordination. Mm -hmm. So we work on more of those things. And then being able to pair a fine motor activity with a gross motor activity at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think it's just important to note that a lot of the times for the school age kids, families really just like to have like a check in. Mm -hmm. So they typically will be referred to us for an evaluation, but it's really just to kind of get a baseline. Are there any deficits? Are there anything that we should be concerned about? Are there activities that we can give a family to work on at home Mm -hmm. to kind of strengthen some of those weaker areas? Mm -hmm. And then those school age kids too, we notice a lot of um, postural control Kind of challenges. So some of those weaker kids who have a harder time sitting at their desk for all all day long, right. we typically will see them for kind of that generalized weakness or strengthening needs. Great. So we often see patients in primary care with sensory concerns. So what are some tips that we can give to parents to help a child who's oversensitive to certain textures? And I'm thinking of things like labels on clothing or socks. 
Yeah. So I think this is something that we typically see a lot and we get referred to for a lot. I think as the primary care physician, I think it's important to kind of educate and let the parent know that everybody has Mm -hmm. sensory challenges or sensory differences. So, you know, I personally don't like to get my hands dirty, but I can still kind of go on with my my daily life. It becomes a concern or a problem when those sensory differences are interfering with everyday activity. So is the child unable to take a shower because they don't like the water touching their body? Are they unable to even put clothes on to go to school because they don't like those things? So when it starts to interfere with those everyday activities, that would be a more of a reason to refer to occupational therapy. We here at CHOP um, don't treat sensory integration on its own. We typically um, will see them when it's linked to an ADL, so an activity of daily living or a dysfunction in that area. What we do do is have kids come in, they typically will get an evaluation and we'll provide the family and the child with strategies to work on at home to address these concerns. Mm -hmm. And then in a couple of weeks from then, we'll do a check-in, see how they're doing, see if the strategies we provided are working or do we need to modify anything. Mm -hmm. So it's typically um, able to be managed at home in a controlled environment with specific strategies from an occupational therapist. And it's great that they can get those strategies off of their evaluation and not necessarily have to go through lots of therapy for something that the parents could work on at home. Correct. So another cool thing that I know that OT does that I've had patients experience is aquatic therapy. So who might benefit from this type of therapy? And when I'm signing the kind of clearance to do it, what should I be thinking about in terms of who's who's good for aquatic therapy and who might not be? Yeah, so occupational therapy um, is involved in aquatic therapy and CHOP's Department of Rehabilitation offers aquatic therapy here as an adjunct to traditional OT and PT services. So primary care physicians don't necessarily need to clear a patient to do aquatic therapy. Um, There's just so many factors that kind of go into it. So what we typically do is just have them come in for an evaluation and then the therapist decides whether aquatic therapy would be appropriate or not. Um, But some important things to kind of keep in mind is that any patients with open wounds, active infections, or an active rash Mm -hmm. would not be appropriate to take into the pool at that time. Um, But for any other special needs, um, like a trach or G-tube or reduced mobility, Mm -hmm. we can modify the environment to successfully and safely get patients in the water. So um, that's something to kind of think and keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, CHOP does have a therapeutic warm pool, which is located at the main campus in the Children's Seashore House. And our pool is equipped with an adjustable depth floor, so it can um, meet the needs of the patient. So it can go from a couple inches to a couple feet, which is a nice, unique uh, thing that we have here. Mm -hmm. And then just some other general benefits of aquatic therapy, if you were thinking, would this be appropriate or not? Um, We can help with increasing range of motion or strength. Uh, any endurance, and it also gives the body some thinking time of like what the movements should look like, so some of that coordination as well. So we interact with OTs and our patients interact with OTs in a variety of settings, so can you help me figure out the the different roles of OTs in different places? So 
I'm thinking about early intervention versus schools and at CHOP and then within CHOP you have inpatient and outpatient. So you're in a lot of places. We are in a lot of places, which is a good thing. Uh, so yeah, we can start with early intervention. So the point of early intervention is really to provide services in the home or in the child's natural environment. You know, we know that research shows that children le- learn best in a natural environment and they're able to transition those skills over easy. So that's why that kind of happens. And so I think also it's better for some families because they don't have to travel. They don't have to leave their home. It's not a lot of things going on. So early intervention definitely has a a really good place. And then when you look at school, school differs a little bit. Um, What an occupational therapist will do in a school setting typically is address any handwriting concerns, Mm -hmm. um, which is what differs from outpatient OT. So you'll see a lot more schools work on handwriting any fine motor delay related to academic performance, so ability to keep up with their peers, be able to write the same math as their peers. Also, pencil grasp, making sure that it starts off well and continues to get better as they progress through kindergarten and first grade. Mm -hmm. And then any visual processing or or motor concerns are also addressed in the school. And I think the, the nice thing about school is that the therapist has the opportunity to work with the teacher directly in the classroom and with that specific problem. Um, whereas outpatient, it obviously, I don't have access to the teacher. I could obviously call them, but it's a lot easier for the school-based therapist to be able to do that in the setting. And the child's in their natural environment. Environment, which is always best. Right. You know, kids always learn best in their natural environment. They're able to transfer those skills that they're learning over a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And then the other big thing that a school-based therapist um, has the advantage of is working on attention. Mm-hmm. So if a child needs any specific sensory strategies, they're able to implement them pretty much immediately mm-hmm. in the classroom environment. Right. Um, so that makes a big difference too. Mm-hmm. Great. And then here at CHOP, so I, we have OTs in basically three different areas at CHOP. So we have outpatient, inpatient, and then we have our clinic model. Mm-hmm. So I'll kind of start with outpatient first. So outpatient here at CHOP uses a medical model. So we typically see patients for episodes of care that last no longer from eight to 12 weeks at a time. So I think it's also really important to, to emphasize to parents that they have questions about outpatient, that it's not forever, right. that it really is meant to address very specific goals in a duration of time. Mm-hmm. So we usually work on very specific things and then we discharge, try them out, see how they go. And if you need us again, we're always here, mm-hmm. but it's a pretty short you know, episode of care. Um, and then it's also typically related to some kind of function, so some kind of ADL dysfunction. We also do see a lot of acute injuries. So if a patient has a fracture mm-hmm. or tendon laceration right. or any complex hand trauma, they typically get a, an episode of care as well. Mm-hmm. And then we'll kind of shift to inpatient. So CHOP-OT is present in both the acute side of the hospital, which is the main the main part. And then we also have an inpatient rehabilitation unit in the right. seashore house. And so this typically, um, they receive services when there is a change in current status, and that can be from something as small as a respiratory virus or congenital birth defect, where they're seen on the other side, mm-hmm. all the way to having a traumatic event happen in their life that they now need to regain all of the skills that they lost. Right. So our kids in um, inpatient rehab can be here from anywhere from a week to four months right. to kind of get them back um, in their daily routines. Mm-hmm. 
And then our last area, which I think is something more unique to CHOP, is our clinic setting. Mm -hmm. So CHOP offers a ton of different types of clinics, um, and occupational therapy is in a lot of them, which is really which is really great. Um, so clinics like T21, mm-hmm. um, our um, neuromuscular clinic, feeding clinic, OT is present in all those things. So if you have a parent whose child already receives some kind of medical care mm-hmm. and they're interested in an occupational therapy evaluation, if OT is in that clinic, then the occupational therapist can screen the Mm -hmm. patient for any concerns during their clinic visit. Great. So that limits the family having to schedule. Yep. And then they can get screened. And if the therapist who screens them feels like therapy would be warranted, then we'll help the family navigate the system to get services. Mm -hmm. Great. Also, I think if you want to look at an OT referral for CHOP, just looking at kind of if they have any underlying conditions. So our kids that have any conditional abnormalities, or cerebral palsy should be followed by an outpatient therapist mm-hmm. through their lifespan to make sure that they don't need any specialized equipment. So mm-hmm. that's another thing that occupational therapy specializes in is being able to make custom-made orthotics right. if they need splinting or anything specific or adaptive equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, an occupational therapist can help with those things as well. So how do we refer a patient to CHOP OT? And when we're making that referral, what information is helpful for us to provide as the providers in the consult to you? Yeah, so as long as um, you've, deci- if you've decided that you have the re- re- correct referral, so you're going to go the outpatient route, the important thing is to put the script through EPIC in the Other Orders tab. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's better that you just put OT consult and treatment and kind of leave the evaluation up to us. Um, It gets a little more difficult when they start putting diagnostic codes in the script. So we actually prefer that you don't do that, that you just write OT, eval, and treat. And then you can provide the family with the number, which is located on the CHOP website under um, occupational therapy. And just making sure that script's actually in the chart um, because they will not be able to be scheduled for an evaluation without that script. And then they'll go through the whole insurance process, make sure they have insurance, and then we'll get them on the schedule to be evaluated. We'll see your consult letter in Epic afterwards. Correct. You will. It will be available in the chart as soon as they're seen. And also to note that um, occupational therapy at CHOP is at um, a lot of different locations. So we're not just here at the main hospital. We're also at King of Prussia, Chalfont, Brandywine, Princeton, Virtua, and Atlantic County. So you don't have to be right down here. You can kind of get it anywhere. That's great because, as you know, we have primary care locations in all those areas as well. So thank you for clarifying a lot about what occupational therapists do. It is Occupational Therapy Month, so happy Occupational Therapy Month. And uh, we are appreciative for all that you do for our patients in all of these different places and the guidance that you give us in terms of taking care of some of our most vulnerable patients. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.